0: We begin the season of Advent this month. If you're like me, you may have not grown up in like a church setting or I did grow up in church, but um, either they weren't talking about it or I wasn't paying attention, probably the latter. Uh, Advent is a thing that many of us aren't really familiar with. Maybe you've heard it, um, but it's simply the season leading up to Christmas, uh, the four weeks leading up to Christmas where we reflect Remember um, and anticipate the coming of Christ. In the same way he came in the flesh as a baby, we long for his return once again. And so that's what Advent is it's a time of waiting and expecting and remembering. And that's what we're going uh, to be doing this month, starting this morning. Um, I'd like to read to you, if you want to grab your Bible now, a passage out of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. That is Romans chapter 8. So grab a Bible and open it to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For all creation waits with Eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And in verse 23, it says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Gail Boss, an author, writes in her introduction to her book entitled All Creation Waits, wrote this. Bear with me, it's lengthy. The early fathers of the Christian church read the ebbing of light and heat and vegetable life each year as a foreshadowing of the time when life as we know it will end completely. That it will end is the rock-bottom truth we sense deep in our primal bones every December, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere. And it rightly terrifies us to their and our abiding fear of dark ending. The church spoke of an adventus, a coming, Faith proclaimed when life as we know it goes this year and at the end of all years, one comes and comes bringing a new beginning. Advent to the church fathers, I'm still reading the quote, was the right naming of the season when light and life are fading. They urged the faithful to set aside four weeks to fast, give, and pray. All ways to strip down, to let the bared soul recall what it knows beneath its fear of the dark. To know what Jesus called the one thing necessary. That there is one who is the source of all life. One who comes to be with us and in us. Even especially in darkness and death. One who brings a new beginning For in this hope, we were saved. That's the meaning of Advent. Let me pray for us before we go any further. Lord, would you help us? This morning as we uh, turn our hearts and our minds to you, and Lord, to consider these words, uh, specifically your word as we read from Romans Lord, would you um, help us to have hearts and minds that are open, ears to hear, Lord, what you would say to us, your kids, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Advent is a time of waiting for Jesus to come again. Advent is a time of waiting in hope. How do you feel about waiting? You love it? We know how to wait in despair. We know how to wait in dread. We know how to wait in frustration. We know how to wait in worry. All of these things come quite naturally. But what about waiting in hope? An eager longing. A difficult, sometimes painful, but a hope-filled waiting as we anticipate the coming of our Lord again. This morning, I want to talk to you guys about waiting and hope. Waiting and hope. Um, My family and I are getting ready to take a trip to South Africa for Christmas this year. I mentioned uh, darkness in December. That's a northern hemisphere phenomenon. Uh, But when you go to the southern hemisphere... You celebrate Christmas in the middle of summer. We're doing that. I'm doing that. My wife has done it many times. The rest of us, the kids and I and Shirley, are going to spend our first Christmas in the heat of South Africa summer. And, uh, oh, yeah, there it is. So when we used to go to South Africa to visit Shirley's parents, uh, they were living on a little farmhouse out in the middle of this vast desert expanse called the Karoo. And I think that 's a pretty i mean it 's a nice picture high res but that's that 's quite accurate, not usually, rain. not usually rain, but you get a bit of green in color when there 's rain and um, I, I used i 'm going to I'm gonna miss it i 'm excited to see where they 're at now we 've not been to their new home but they 're no longer they sold the farm my father in law and my mother in law they they 've retired they sold the family farm they 've moved out of the crew they 're still near the crew, but this is where we used to to, uh, to spend our, our family trips, um, and uh, I'm gonna miss it. The Karoo, it's, um, it's surreal. It's like one of these places where you've been driving a few hours, and you've not seen like, any sign of civilization. You become aware that, oh, this is, we are like really in the middle of nowhere. And then at night, there's like virtually 0% light pollution, and when there isn't any clouds, you can look up at the sky. And I promise you, this probably isn't psych- or scientifically correct, but it's almost as if you can see the curvature of the Earth's atmosphere, like nebulae in the skies. And everything's still. And it feels like time is just, it's, it's, it's slowed down or it's sped up. It's just, it's all of a sudden, it becomes a very new and different experience. Uh... Waiting feels very differently in the crew. So, God, okay. we can cry. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits For the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Keep your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Um, Without us all becoming farmers and moving out to the desert, my question this morning is how can we learn? To wait in hope, how can we grow in this uh, exhortation to wait in hope? Um, I have a confession last week, um, we finished our teaching series through the Book of Ruth, and uh, I attempted to say a few things, um, a couple of things about hope. So I usually listen back to my messages every week. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that was, that was pretty dang good. <laughs> Feeling encouraged. Other times I'm like, ooh, that's, wait, what am I saying? <laughs> uh, Lord, help us. Uh, last week was kind of one of those weeks, and I realized why. I, had, I, I prayed about it. I'm like, Lord, what's, what was, was something off last week? Do I need to repent? Do I need to make a public confession? And I realize, um, and maybe there was a few things, but the main thing was, what I was, what I was attempting to say about hope was largely just me sharing some like, theories that I've pieced together about hope. Here's my confession. I actually know very little about hope. I've had a very, very blessed life. Call me privileged. I've suffered, and I'm not really interested in comparing myself to others. It's, it's not super helpful. Um, it's all a bit relative, to be honest with you, when it comes to pain and suffering. But as I reflected on my life, I realized most of what I've actually experienced about hope is theoretical. I do know that a Apart from Jesus and his victory over death, apart from Jesus' resurrection, there's very little hope in this life or beyond. That much I've, I've concluded. That is a deepening conviction of mine. And I also, I also know that with Jesus, there is always hope. Hope is alive. Um. But in terms of actually having to like uh, go through the growing pains of hope, where you are in a life situation where you have to hope, hope or die, I, I, I've never been there. The most I've had to hope um, in my life is probably with, to do with my marriage. Marriage is amazing. I'm so happy I'm married to my wonderful, charismatic, slightly wild South African wife. But let me tell you, it's a ride. Oh my goodness, it's a ride. And there's been moments in our marriage where we both have had to fight for hope. And there's been moments where we've looked at each other and essentially said, like, "You got any hope left?" Nope, Me neither. What are we going to do? Let's pray. And because Jesus is alive, um, we do have hope. We've never stopped hoping, even when it felt dire. So there it is. I was told in some preaching course that if you're going to talk about something that you really know very little about, either don't talk about it or, like, just be honest about it. So there you go. That's where I'm coming from. That's my honest confession. Some of you in here are probably experts on hope. And maybe, maybe you can take the mic one of these days. But here's what I'll say with that out of the way. How can we learn to wait in hope? First of all, waiting in hope involves suffering. Waiting in hope involves suffering. As we read, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hope requires time. Um, It's the nature of waiting. But of course, time itself isn't the problem. Um, Whether we live in the frenetic sort of atmosphere of the city or we're just chilling out in the crew, uh, time isn't what's the problem. In fact, I read someplace recently, someone said time is the fertile soil of hope. For while there's still time, there's still hope. And it's good. However, occasionally, time spent on planet Earth uh, can get painful. But it's not only the fact that we're living in a broken world for now. Hope itself is inherently painful. Hope hurts. Because hoping acknowledges the deepest, not yet fulfilled longings of my hungry and thirsty soul. It's the ache of hoping. Something deep down inside me tells me, but there's more. There's more to come. It's not meant to stay this way forever. And so I hope, I hope, and I hope. And in hoping, I'm acknowledging the not yet fulfilled longings of my heart. So hoping hoping's painful. Um, there is a temptation, I would argue, as always, to sort of um, go to extremes. Of course the obvious one obvious extreme would be hopelessness. Just saying, you know what, like I'm tired of hoping. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of believing that actually there is goodness to be had, to be experienced, to be engaged in the land of the living. And I'm tired of being let down, that ache that I'm so painfully aware of, I don't want to deal with it anymore, so forget hope. Forget hope. Um, So that's one extreme option. The other option would be to somehow uh, begin believing perhaps, out of just sheer desperation, that this is hope has been fulfilled, and that if perhaps I'm not experiencing perfection in this life, then maybe I'm I'm doing it wrong, um, and that that can't be it either. Um, I find that the latter extreme is uh, is the one that I probably slip into more often than not. I am a, I'm a forever optimist. I'm naively optimistic when it comes to life. And maybe that's uh, just a symptom of the fact that I've not had to like, really suffer much. Um, I'm always believing that it's going to get good and it's going to work out. <clears throat> I like that about myself. But one can make the mistake of thinking that like this, this is it. That's what's called an over-realized eschatology. Ever heard that? An over-realized eschatology. Um, eschatology, it's a theological term for like the study of in-things. The end of the age, when it's all said and done and the kingdom of heaven finally comes crashing in and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. That's the end. It's the eschaton. An over-realized eschatology begins to sort of you, you begin to relate with reality as if the kingdom has like, actually come. And um, you don't have to live too long to, to realize that's, um, that's simply not the case. Simply not the case. And the longer you believe that or are determined uh, to see your over-realized, eschatology realized, um, the more you're setting yourself up for um, not hope-filled pain. But just pain where you end up feeling full of resentment and disillusion. We don't need an over-realized eschatology. I can honestly say I am content in knowing the lover of my soul. While my heart still aches and cries out, Lord Jesus, come. Come soon. And that is one of the beautiful paradoxes of learning to wait and hope. I'm content. God is good. Satisfaction is available, but my heart still longs for the perfect one to return, to come soon. Paul writes in his first letter to the church in Corinth, he says, while we're waiting for the perfect one, These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope are essentially uh, two sides of the same coin. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for. It's believing what you've yet to see. But when the perfect does come, we won't need faith or hope anymore. All that remains will be love when the perfect comes. So waiting in hope involves suffering. Secondly, waiting in hope, it requires a sharp eye for spotting joy in the rubble or beauty in the ashes, if you will. Quoting from the Book of James again, this is how he opens his letter. James, it's, it's one of the New Testament letters. He opens his letter by saying this: Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. The monosodium glutamate uh, translation says this, consider it... (laughs) That's stupid. (laughs) The MSG version says, says it this way, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work. So you become mature, well developed, not deficient in any way. Uh, this is God's word. <laughs> Sometimes I imagine if I ever met a uh, James the writer in person, I don't think I would like James. <laughs> I'm like, how dare you write something so, so audacious. It's true, though. It's true. It's absolutely true, because it's God's word. But it's hard. It's hard for me. But I'm not talking about that kind of joy, actually. This an, I'm talking about a different kind of joy. A keen eye to spot joy in the rubble. So While we're waiting, in hope, there's another kind of joy. Psalm 34, verse 18 says this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus can be found walking intimately with those who travel on the road marked with suffering. If you're looking for him... You can sometimes experience moments of deep, deep joy in walking with Jesus as you learn to wait and hope. Now, I'm all for learning the lessons. God knows I need perseverance. God knows I have a lot of work to do in terms of becoming more like Jesus, having my character formed through the difficult things, the trials. And it is a joy, it's a gift when God works in, in the, the difficult things of our lives in that way. But there's another joy. If we're looking out for him, we'll meet Jesus on that road marked with suffering. He'll show up when it feels like hopes run out. All of a sudden, we're walking down that dirt road thinking the resurrection maybe just speculation at best. And Jesus joins us on the journey. And he says, oh, what are you you talking about? What's going on? And the next thing we know, we're sitting at the dinner table with Jesus. Having intimate conversation. Experiencing his presence in a way that perhaps you just don't. um, Outside of moments of suffering. Where we're learning to wait and hope. Lastly, waiting in hope requires courage to hope again. There's a true story that's recorded in uh, the gospel according to John, John chapter 5. Some of you might remember this. I remember, Ben, you preached a sermon on this when we were going through John. It was so good. John chapter 5, it's the story of the man who was uh, physically challenged, disabled, couldn't walk. We're told for 38 years, he just laid there on his mat. And then one day, Jesus comes along. For whatever reason, like singles this man out. And he walks up to him and he asks him this question. Do you want to be healed? 38 years. Do you want to be healed? That's, what a question. What a question. If we wait long enough, we can begin to form bonds with our suffering. That's true, right? That's a universal truth. Or how do we put it these days? We form bonds with our trauma. That's, that's, the, that's the word. If we wait long enough, we will begin to form bonds with our pain. Uh, if we wait even longer, we'll even begin to like construct identities out of our pain, and we will cling to our pain. And if anyone uh, questions our uh, victim status, oh, we will. Those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. Do you want to be healed? <clears throat> Even though certain things perhaps won't get healed in this life until Jesus comes again, until the waiting's finally over, Jesus is still the master of redemption. And while we're waiting, he's constantly making beautiful things out of broken people, displaying his strength in our weaknesses, his goodness in our struggles. But it will require courage to stand when Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, go home, or come home. You know, later um, in the story, we're told that Jesus, he ends up, looping back, and he sees the young man again. And he has gotten up, and he has carried his mat. And the religious elite are offended because he's doing this thing on the quote-unquote Sabbath. It's a whole other whole thing. But Jesus ends up seeing him again, and he says something to the man. This is, this, is, this is something else. This is bold. This is how bold Jesus is in the way he loves us. He sees the man. He says, um, now, how he, I don't want to mess it up. He says, don't sin anymore that something worse may not happen to you. What do you think about that? I mean, the, the, the implication is obvious. He's saying that somehow, now forgive me, like this is going to mess with some of us. But the implication is that the reason why you ended up laying there for 38 years because you sinned. Now, I've healed you, but go and sin no more lest something worse happen to you. I mean, that's just kind of offensive. But we know Jesus. We know Jesus. Jesus never does anything that's outside of his heart full of love. I think Jesus is actually uh, confronting this man's determination to hold on to the fact that like no but I'm here because because I, I, every time every time I, I wanted to get down into the water and 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 get healed because like the tradition was that if you could get down in the water when the waters were being stirred then there would be like healing and 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 every time I tried someone would just cut in front of me and I'm just a victim and I just and that's why I'm here Jesus said, it was like, it was as if Jesus was confronting the man's determination to cling to this identity that he had created as a victim. I know this is hard. This is hard, right? It takes courage to hope again. 38 years. I laid there, hurting, getting passed up, cut off, abused, exploited, taken advantage of, left behind. And now you're asking me, do I want to be healed? Jesus is giving him the opportunity. It's time, my friend. It's time. You are healed. Now get up. And the man gets up carries his mat and he goes home. Maybe this is me um, speaking out of ignorance again. But there will come moments I believe when Jesus will command us, invite us to get up, to walk, to hope again. It doesn't mean everyone in every way gets healed in this life. But it does mean there will be moments when Jesus wants to redeem like the painful thing. Instead of the healing that you were hoping for, or perhaps expected, Jesus says, give it to me. I'll make something beautiful out of it. And instead of merely being able to walk again, we'll use that broken thing, that thing that you were so ashamed of, you thought that was just the the end of life as you know it. Give it to me. I'll I'll make something beautiful out of it. we will bless the world with it. I'll demonstrate my strength in that weakness. What you had written off as just shame. Put it in my hands and I'll make it new. I'll make it beautiful. Now get up. And it takes courage to hope again. Particularly when it's been a long, long wait. Because we form those bonds with our pain. But that's who I am. That's who I've always been. And I've been done wrong. And that's, you guys get it. Waiting in hope. It takes courage. And in this hope, we were saved. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Again, Um, I felt like the spirit was just kind of prompting me a little bit. So I want to, I want to like back, backtrack real quick. I need to say something. Otherwise I'll just end up saying it next week. Um, What I wasn't saying that if you're suffering and you hear me calling you to take courage And hope again, I'm not saying that somehow your suffering is the result of a sin that you've committed. I I I need to make that really clear, actually. Maybe, maybe that's true. I mean, I've done some pretty stupid things in my life. Don't think I'm alone. But that is absolutely not always the case. In fact, the most painful stuff of life usually is when we've been victimized when someone has sinned against us, right? But I think what Jesus is wanting to do in that moment is call this man to receive a new identity. 38 years, that's a long time to, to begin seeing oneself in a particular way. And I think that's why Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be healed? Are you ready to let go of that old identity? Are you ready to hope again? Can we stand together, please? As our worship team um, prepares to lead us in song, We're going to receive communion. So if you're serving communion this morning, you can um, please prepare the elements. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. And keep doing it. As long as you're waiting and hope, do this in remembrance of me. this, for me, reminds me of the, the wonderful, uh, the paradoxical truth that I mentioned earlier. When I receive the bread and the wine, um, I can taste it. It's good. I can feel it going down. Uh, it's not a full meal, but the idea is that it, we, we get filled up. And we can, we can, in a moment, experience the goodness of God among us. The satisfaction that Jesus offers us right here, right now, at least in part. Because of what he did for us on the cross. Body and blood given for us. It's how we're forgiven. It's how we come home. God has made a way. But then we also remember that this, this isn't it. There's more to come. There's more to come. I do well to hope. Even if it hurts, even if it reminds me of that deep ache in my soul, we remember that our Lord is the faithful one. He died for us. Jesus doesn't flake out, He doesn't disappoint. He will come. Lord Jesus, come. Whenever you're ready, I invite you to receive communion this morning. Um, If you're not a Christian and you're like, I'm I'm not sure about all this forgiveness, Jesus' death on the cross, and you're not comfortable receiving communion, that's okay. You're very welcome just to stay in your pew and and we'll all sing together. Um, But if you would like to put your trust in Jesus this morning, then the invitation is for you. Please receive the gift whenever you're ready.